Cassidy. Welcome to What Crime Is It? Today we are on part three of the Johnny Gosh abduction. If you have not seen one and two, I encourage you to do so. There's a lot of information there. It was enough to split this story into three parts. We've covered obviously the abduction, the theories, the Des Moines Register, the pedophile ring found there, um, and some very kind of scary and interesting developments during the search in the early days. Now we've moved on to another pretty interesting portion of this case, again, with controversy and questions, but here we go. It's 1991. In 1991, a 24-year-old man named Paul Benassi, a victim of sex trafficking since the age of six, was arrested and convicted himself of sexually abusing three boys. Benassi, a diagnosed schizophrenic, reported to have over 100 personalities, claimed during his interviews with a prison psychiatrist to have played a part in the Johnny Gosh abduction. Benassi originally surfaced during an embezzlement investigation of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, and its director, Larry King. Benassi began providing details to investigators about a pedophile ring claiming that King, considered a rising star in the Republican Party at the time, along with some of the most prominent figures in Omaha, were involved in the trafficking and victimization of teenage prostitutes. Some were abducted children and some were runaways. Paul described being brought to parties in Washington, D.C., along with other boys and girls, where the first half of the party would, I guess, be a normal gathering of politicians and dignitaries. But as the party would wind down, some guests would leave the party, and those interested sort of in the quote-unquote after-party would remain. Here is a sound clip of Benassi taken from an interview with retired FBI agent Ted Gunderson. It's detailing his experiences in Washington a little bit further. Forgive the quality. It's an old audio and there's a lot of hissing and it's really kind of, it's a little rough, but I tried to fix it. I have a little bit of um, recording equipment here, so I really just did the best I can. Here we go. Aside from the fact that you had sex with some of these politicians, at some of these parties, did you recognize any prominent senators or congressmen or anybody, even though you may not have had sex with them. A lot of the parties I went to with uh, King had prominent people, because in Washington, D.C., when I moved down there, you guys had parties. At the beginning of the party, you had a lot of young, what young guys stuff that were servers. They'd sometimes serve stuff, sometimes you'd be out in the background, you'd be walking around parties and stuff. Nothing was to take place then. After the party was over, the ones that were involved with him, or the ones that he was trying to get political favors from, that won, whatever they wanted, they would stay or they'd come in after the party was over, or the next day. See, so at the party, nothing even abnormal. I mean, if somebody was in there and stuff, they'd see no abnormal activities going on. So they, you know, honestly, you know, say that you know, I've been to parties, but I've never seen anything. So, but I've seen uh, some parties there in Washington. I've seen President Bush there. Talking about him. What 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 year was that? Was he president was or vice president? Vice president. That's when he was still vice president. That. You saw him in how many of these parties? I seen him in about three or four parties. What did Fred, Vice President Bush hang around after the party was over or, or what? He was after the party a couple of times in there hiding in the closet, but I didn't I didn't do nothing with him he was with a black kid and he was with a white kid. What do you mean with a white kid and a black kid? Well there was one uh Tell me about the time when you were in the closet. Well, man, it's like... Who's the other kid? 
Uh, you know, right now. He's from the Washington, D.C. area. So he wasn't from around here. But, uh, we were just sitting in the closet talking, just kind of trying to mind our own business. We were staying away from the rest of the party. We were in a back room or bedroom. Was this after the formal party was over? Well, it was kind of during the formal party, but it was after a lot of people had already started leaving and stuff. And you remember that this couple of secret servicemen came in. One went to the window and looked around outside the window and stuff. The other one came in and looked in the closet and he thought he'd seen us. Was it dark? He had a flashlight. The lights were off. He didn't even bother turning the lights. Come in with a flashlight. Looked in the closet. You know, I guess he didn't really look around it because me and him were sitting on the floor right in the moment. It kind of looked like this. He didn't even look down. Kind of looked like that and stuff. Turned around and walked out of the room and stuff. And then we seen this other guy come in and stuff. And I didn't recognize him at first. Was the closet door open or closed? It was partially open. I seen at the time Vice President Bush go in and they, all they did was the kids perform oral sex on him. That was it. Kids what? Perform oral sex on him. And the kid performed oral sex. Which of the white kid or the white kid? Both of them. Well, first, I seen him at two different times. First with the white kid. Then when you were in the closet? Yeah. We were in the closet the both times. Oh, were you? That was our normal hideout. I mean, uh, me, him, and other kids and stuff, that's where we hid out at. we go on the closet yeah. and stuff and we would get away from the party. So you were in that closet twice when Vice President Bush came in? I was in that closet more than twice. I mean, when Vice President Bush came in. Two separate parties, once with a white kid and once with a black kid. So you saw him twice. Yeah. And the kid had to perform oral sex on him. And what happened after they finished? He just got up and kind of left. So the Franklin scandal introduces an entirely separate cast of vile characters and list of victims. You can find loads of information by searching Franklin Credit Union Scandal. It's certainly one of the routinely cited examples of child slavery and alleged governmental cover-ups in the U.S. Conspiracy of Silence is also a film that you might want to check out on the subject as well. So the issue we run into here, though, is that for every scandal and story, conspiracy, link, sighting, and suspect that emerges, we have another person, place, or thing that disputes it. And it discredits its veracity. I mean, literally for every person that comes forward, there's someone else who will say they're a fraud. It essentially cancels out everyone and everything to do with this case. But not to mention Paul Benassi, because of doubts that have been raised, I think would be leaving out a huge part of the Johnny Gosh case. And until we know what happened to Johnny, there's really no part that can be ignored. So here's what happened. Paul Benassi's lawyer, John DeCamp, contacted John Sr. after he read the transcript of the interview that Paul gave with his prison psychiatrist. In that transcript was described an incident involving a paperboy in Iowa. DeCamp decided to contact the Goshes after some research he did on the details of Benassi's claims, and I guess he felt that they were credible. So at first, John Sr. did not initially inform Noreen of the call and decided to meet Benassi himself in prison. It has been reported by Noreen that John Sr. brought a Noreen lookalike with him to his first meeting with John DeCamp and Paul Benassi. Noreen tells the story of later going to meet John DeCamp, and when she entered the office, he said it was nice to see her again, although they'd never met. Noreen claims to also have contacted the woman who attended the meeting as her, and of course now, John Sr. says none of that ever happened, that he went alone. But here's Noreen telling the story again to Ted Gunderson. Here's the clip. 
A number of years after John was kidnapped, I had the occasion to go to John DeCamp's office in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we were going to be discussing some avenues on the case to help bring it more towards a legal resolution and solving it. I entered the room and John came over. I had never met him before. And he came over and grabbed the hold of my hand. He was very gracious and he said, Oh, Noreen, it is so good to see you again. It's been such a long time. And I looked at him and I said, John, I've never been to your office before. I've never met you before. He said, well, of course you did. You came over here in 1988 or 1989 with your husband. And we all went out to the prison to talk to Paul Benassi. And I said, no, it wasn't me. I have never been here. So at that point, John DeCamp called his main secretary and office manager in, and he said, didn't John Gosh come over here in 1988 or 89, and didn't he bring Noreen, and didn't we go out to the prison? And Jan said, yes, he did, yes, you did, but it wasn't this woman. She pointed at me. He brought somebody else that looked like her. It's not the same woman. I didn't know what to say. I was speechless. So again, according to mixed reports, when John Sr., and this is also from directly John Sr., but he's told more than one story. But apparently when he arrived at the prison, he asked Benassi if he knew who he was. And Benassi apparently looked at him and said, your eyes look like Johnny Gosh. So at the time... It was reported that John Sr. left the encounter that day, feeling fairly confident that Benassi was telling the truth, but he did decide to not tell Noreen yet and hired a private detective, a man named Roy Stevens. He's an Omaha-based private eye, and he wanted him to investigate Benassi further. So following hundreds of hours of interviews, Roy was convinced that Benassi was telling the truth. I've been working with Paul for two years and following up this information following up the leads that he has provided, the personal knowledge that he has given. Not once in two years have I been able to prove him to be other than truthful. I've located other people. I've located other people involved in this case that Paul has provided information on. He knows too many things, personal things about Johnny that even I did not know when I went into this case for the Goshes. He knew things that took place that morning he knew about the photograph that had been taken of Johnny two weeks before he was abducted. Nobody knew the photograph had ever been taken. Not only did he tell us about the photograph, he described it in the background that was in the photograph, matched perfectly the information that we have on the photograph. It's worth mentioning that at the time, Maureen believed and has said that Bernasi did not have anything to gain by coming forward. You know, there wouldn't be any reduction in his sentence. And basically, Roy Stevens also said that Benassi was credible. So according to Benassi, the day before the abduction, a man referred to as Emilio, who has now been suggested to be the man in the police sketch, took Benassi from Omaha to a hotel in Des Moines. Benassi said he first met Emilio when he was just a young boy living in Iowa. At the hotel, Benassi and Emilio met Sam Soda and a man named Tony. Now, Sam Soda, if you remember, was that man in part two who had called Noreen 
warning her of the upcoming abduction of Eugene Martin. So obviously, this man has described himself as an advocate for abducted children, but here we have Benassi claiming that he was a conspirator. So according to Benassi, it was at the hotel that Sam Soda showed Emilio photos of local paperboys. He also listed how much money he could make off of each one. In that group of photos was Johnny. Noreen has claimed that a man was seen photographing Johnny in the weeks prior to his abduction. So according to Benassi, Emilio liked the look of Johnny and set his photo aside. So on September 5th, 1982, Benassi, Sam Soda, Emilio, and Tony went to go kidnap Johnny. Benassi said that he was in the back seat of that blue Ford Fairmont and that Emilio was driving. When they spotted Johnny, they stopped and threw him in the car. Benassi was instructed to hold Johnny down and chloroform him until he was unconscious. Johnny was then transferred to another vehicle driven by Tony and Sam Soda. And according to Benassi, Johnny was then driven to a farmhouse near Sioux City. Benassi, just a few years older than Johnny at the time, claimed that he was forced to perform sexual acts with Johnny at gunpoint on that very first night while Emilio filmed the molestation. About a week later, or two weeks later, again, conflicting accounts, Johnny was sold to a man called the Colonel, who transferred him to Colorado, where he was held captive and used as a sex slave. Benassi claimed that he did not see Johnny again until 1986. So because he was able to provide details not released by law enforcement, the Gashas were pretty convinced of Paul's legitimacy. Noreen talks about how Benassi was able to identify various scars and marks on Johnny's body. He also knew how Johnny would stutter when he got upset. Also, Noreen was a yoga instructor, and Benassi knew about that. He knew that Johnny would go with her to yoga. Paul Benassi has been able to supply us with information that only he could have known if he had been with my son at some point in time. For instance, there was a scar above Johnny's ankle, a scar that we never reported to the media, never reported to the police. Paul was able to correctly describe that scar, the color of it, the shape of it, and the location. Paul also was able to fill me in on details of things that Johnny had said to him. Again, for instance, I teach yoga, and I have taught for about 17 years. He told me that Johnny told him that he used to go to yoga class with me on nights when I didn't have a babysitter because I wouldn't leave him home alone. And he would take his schoolwork and finish it in the back of the room, and then the two of us would go out to his favorite Mexican restaurant to eat afterwards, and that was some of his special times he remembered with me. Manasi also identified Sam Soda from a group of photos and knew that his first name was Sam. Also, in the summer of 1991, family friends of the Goshes were dining at a Mexican restaurant in Denver, Colorado. They claimed a spot, Johnny Gosh was here, written on the bathroom wall. This led the investigator, Roy Stevens, to travel to Colorado. He took photos of the exterior of the restaurant as well as the bathroom wall. Benassi was shown the pictures and accurately described the inside of the establishment. He said that he, Johnny, and another boy were painting their nails inside of the restaurant. I guess people were making fun of them and getting them in trouble so that they went into the bathroom and wrote on the bathroom walls with the red nail polish, Johnny Gosh was here. That information about the restaurant and the wall with the writing on it 
didn't even come from Paul. It came from some, I believe, former neighbors of John and Irene Gosh that were out there on vacation, saw it, remembered, and called the Gosh family. They, in turn, called me. On my next trip out, I saw the restaurant. I took those photographs of the wall. When I came back, I visited with Paul. I did not show him the writing on the wall, did not even tell him what was there. I simply showed him a photograph of the exterior of the restaurant. Once he saw the exterior, he told me what kind of restaurant it is, the unique features of the restaurant, which is very unique, and then proceeded to tell me about the fact they had been painting their fingernails that day. They were being made fun of, so they went to the restroom, and the end result was the writing on the wall. The interesting fact of the whole thing is the writing on the wall is in fact put on with dark red fingernail polish, a maroon type red. In Paul's description of what took place, they were using fingernail polish, dark red maroon type. Paul did not know I'd ever seen that restaurant or seen the wall. So a few things here. So the questions that arise when you begin to research this story could literally fill an entire episode. Um, but here are some that are worth mentioning. So John Sr. has claimed that he never brought a look-alike to that first meeting with Paul Benassi. Something, though, that he has only recently disputed after all of these years. And of course, you know that Maureen swears not only that this woman exists, but apparently this woman's picture is in Maureen's book. Um, also, the fact that Paul Benassi had you know, quote, nothing to gain by telling his story. We really don't know that to be true because while, yes, he didn't necessarily get time reduced from his sentence, you know, he did go on to win a large settlement from a civil suit against Larry King and Noreen testified for him. And I'm sure that to have the support and sympathetic portrayal of Noreen Gosh put into the media certainly could have helped Paul in many ways that we can't speculate or know. Roy Stevens claims, right? So Roy says he never told Benassi about the restaurant or the writing on the wall. And we have to take his word on that, which, you know, in a situation where there is this much conflicting evidence, someone's word is nice, but unfortunately it's just not enough. So the other thing is that, you know, there are there are people who are making claims about this whole thing being a big money grab. It seems like a very elaborate and extensive ruse for money. I just imagine that there are easier ways. But that said, there are, you know, there's money involved for all parties. Whether or not I believe that that's why you would do all of this, I'm not sure. But these are the things, these are the claims being made online. Benassi, in letters he wrote to Noreen from prison, alluded to the abductions of Eugene Martin and Mark Allen, and also how JG was not the only boy we got from Des Moines. According to Benassi, the colonel, the man from Colorado who allegedly purchased Johnny, was a man named Michael Aquino. Aquino was a career officer in the U.S. Army, specializing in psychological warfare. Benassi has given interviews saying that he was forced as a child by the CIA to participate in Project Monarch, which he claims is a subsection of Project MK Ultra and Project Artichoke. According to Benassi, under intense psychiatric care, he was able to recall memories of sexual abuse, 
by international pedophile rings, politicians, and Satanists who allegedly used a form of trauma-based mind control programming to make him a sex slave. Apparently, this is how he claims to have met Michael Aquino, who served as a lieutenant colonel in military intelligence. Michael Aquino is an ordained satanic priest. He was a follower of Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan. He went on to found the Temple of Set. So Benassi claims that the colonel had a home in Colorado where he kept the trafficked children. America's Most Wanted went with Paul Benassi to see the house, which has since been abandoned. And there were etchings on the basement walls where Paul said the children were kept. So this is an interview with Noreen Gosh uh, from EQI.org. I'm going to put the link below. This was interesting. So these are just some of her answers. You, again, I'm going to put the link so you can read the whole interview. She says, in my book, I tell the story of Michael Aquino, head of the satanic cult, the Temple of Set. You see, when Johnny was taken away, he was taken to a farmhouse and kept there for two weeks. After those two weeks, Johnny was sold for a sum of money. A man they called the Colonel came and took Johnny to Colorado. Paul Benassi identified that man as Colonel Michael Aquino. Aquino was involved in psyops and mind war experimentation for the U.S. government. He had a hand in developing mind control. Unfortunately, they began to experiment on men in the services. This is the concept of the Manchurian candidate, if you've ever seen that movie. One that could be turned into a killing machine and never remember, programmed by keywords and phrases. Then they decided to experiment on prisoners in prisons. Then came along Michael Aquino, who was already a pedophile. He and others thought that it would be financially beneficial to them somehow to begin to experiment on children. That's when they began taking children. In the early 1980s, there was a rash of kidnappings of young boys across the country. Many were deemed runaways. There were only a handful that were taken who actually made the national headlines. Johnny was one of them. So like I said, I'll put a link below. What I find interesting is if you look and you start searching, and I'll actually put a link to this too, Paul Benassi does talk about being a part of this. There's an interview that he does when he is being interviewed by uh, Larry King's counsel during the civil trial. He has to give testimony and it's on tape and he goes in and out of his personalities. And one of his personalities is called Wesley. That's not Wesley, it's Wesley and it's two names. And he goes on, this, this personality in Paul Benassi goes on to talk about him being programmed by the government. Not new memories. There are old memories that simply have not been stated before. And I am not Paul right now. I am Wesley. Why are you Wesley now? Because I am tired of you people doing this to him. I was attempting to make everything go away. Do you understand, Wesley, that Paul brought this lawsuit? This is Paul's no. lawsuit. No, Paul didn't bring the lawsuit. Who brought the lawsuit? Mikey brought the lawsuit. Why is the name on the petition and the complaint listed as Paul Benassi? Because we had to go under Paul Benassi's name because he's the body. What is your name, sir? West Lee, L-E-E. West Lee, two words? Yes, two words. Do you know what rank Michael Aquino holds? He was a colonel. Is he currently employed there? I am not aware of the current situation. Now, describe the program again, the monarch program. 
Monarch, as I said, was a program that used children to make multiple personalities for future use as spies and as a way to take over the United States government. In 1999, another stunning claim would be made by Noreen Gosh while under oath testifying on the stand for Paul Benassi in his civil suit against Larry King. When asked if she had seen her missing son Johnny since he disappeared in 1982, Noreen answered, yes. It was also during this trial that Noreen claims when Paul Benassi was asked how he knew that Johnny would be alone on the paper route that day, Paul answered, we arranged it with Johnny's father. A claim that John Sr adamantly denies. So here's some more from that interview from EQI.org. He was here in 1997, but I kept silent for two years and didn't tell anyone about his visit until 1999 when I was on the witness stand testifying for Paul Benassi in his civil case. But what I had done in the meantime was to make an appointment with the county attorney. I went and told him that I had information from an informant. I gave the county attorney the names of the people involved and how the organization worked and asked him to begin an investigation. I did not tell him that the informant was my son. So the interviewer asks, did the county attorney investigate? And she says, no. He said that he would not. The only reason he gave was that I would have somehow need to convince my informant to turn himself in and be part of the witness protection program and that they, quote, might be able to give my informant immunity for any crimes he may have committed during his captivity. I looked at the county attorney and said, they might be able to give him immunity? Well, that doesn't work for me. He responded, well, you're going to have to turn over the boy. I said, I don't have the boy. I didn't tell him that it was Johnny, but I did tell him that the informant had told me that Johnny was still alive. I said to the county attorney, I came here to share information with you as I always have. This way, I can never be charged with withholding information. If you choose not to investigate, that's up to you. I will continue my investigation as I always have. So, you know, obviously there was a lot of, I mean, look, Paul Benassi, he talked about it, right? He committed all of these crimes. He was abusing kids. He says it was at the behest of his captors. Um, they're breaking crime. They're breaking the law all the time. And there is a lot of speculation that it's partly how their captors keep them quiet. You know, not only are they connected with law enforcement and government, but these kids have broken tons of laws and, and they threaten that they'll put them in jail. And again, if you watch any of those Conspiracy of Silence, you'll learn more about that. Um, and again, do with that what you will. Noreen and John divorced, and by all accounts I can find, they have not spoken in a decade or more. And, you know, you're starting to see those inconsistencies in their accounts. Despite her claims of visiting with Johnny in 1997 and her insistence that he is alive but living off-grid for his own safety, Maureen accused John Sr. of killing and burying Johnny under their house. In recent claims, John Sr. alleges a phone call from police stating that Maureen had insisted that they go and excavate the basement of their West Des Moines home, and it's there that they would find Johnny. Noreen has also claimed secret visits from the CIA and connections that have since been revealed between the West Des Moines police chief, Orville Cooney, and the pedophile ring that abducted Johnny, explaining that this was why he refused to act and became such a nemesis during that initial search. 
episodes. So then it began to make perfect sense to me why our police chief told people to go home at the search site that Johnny was a runaway, why the police chief would not investigate the possible Omaha connection. He was involved with the same people. Now, as sick as that made me feel, I at least knew what I was dealing with. I at least knew what my obstacles were and what I had to continue to do. And I had to continue to keep Johnny's story alive, letting everybody in America know what was happening and that children were being ripped off the streets. Then there's James Guckard, a.k.a. Jeff Gannon, the former male escort who was going by a fake name and had somehow obtained White House press passes during the second Bush presidency, although no one could find out how he got them. He was suddenly suspected to himself be Johnny Gosh and asked to take a DNA test by Noreen, something he agreed to but has never produced, although I do believe it's now been disproven in other ways. And just as an aside, Paul Benassi is married now and living a quiet life, attempting to put some distance between himself and his tortured past. I've heard Noreen ask this question, and I'm paraphrasing, but why would an abduction of a 12-year-old boy be handled with such suspicion and denied resources by law enforcement from day one? And why would a desperate mother be met with so much resistance and so many targeted attacks on her motives and character if there was not something else going on? Some cover-up or some larger conspiracy? I have to say, it does make me wonder. Her unwillingness to crawl into a hole and die, I feel, should have been seen as courageous. But instead, it's been depicted as hysterical and opportunistic. Her life has been threatened and her name dragged through the mud, and yet her work has changed the fate of countless missing and exploited children, and she continues to support families to this day. And that is a fact. John Sr. has also been accused of terrible things that he adamantly denies. By most accounts, he has also been described as a very kind and polite man. And for me, it calls to mind parents of John Bonet and Marilyn McCann. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child and then to have to suffer cruel attacks of a faceless mob. I personally have been shocked at the message boards and blogs accusing Noreen of such calculated misdeeds. And what I wonder is, how can you be so sure? And how can you be so mean? Where does that even come from? Look, I have no idea what happened to Johnny. And neither do you. And if you do know what happened to Johnny? My guess is that you're not calling attention to yourself by writing nasty things on message boards. I hope that Noreen and John Sr. both find peace in their remaining days on this earth and maybe some answers too. And I will pray for that. Thank you as always. We'll see you next time on What Crime Is It?